Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Jenny Brown. Welcome to this Bailey Gifford sponsored event. I am very pleased this afternoon to be introducing you to a multi-talented performer, writer, actor, comedian, and now television presenter, Griff Rees-Jones, who first came to Edinburgh, I was just saying, 37 years ago as a student uh, for Cambridge Footlights and acting in a number of plays uh, in that festival. Griff is well known to you, of course, for his many um, comedies, alias Smith & Jones, Not the Nine O'Clock News. But as a television presenter, he has carved out something of reputation for himself as a campaigner, a very effective and natural campaigner. You'll all remember BBC's restoration programme in which he highlighted the plight of many of this country's buildings and galvanised the nation, really, into taking notice uh, into what we should be doing to preserve them. His latest venture, which is on the television at the moment, is a series of river journeys. And he's been there in the, in the river journeys. He's been highlighting our natural affinity with our waterways and really just showing us how we've begun to lose that connection with the rivers, much to our peril. So please, could you join with me in welcoming Griff Rees-Jones? Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Jenny, that's great. Thanks very much for that. That's the sort of thing that my, um, my, uh, my father would have smiled at and my mother believed. I, um, <laughs> I just, I wanted to, I, I did want to start by saying, by contradicting you completely <laughs> and saying that I'm not a campaigner in any sense of the word at all. Are there any anglers or fishermen <laughs> here today? Okay, I'll talk more slowly. Uh, no, they, no, I, I've got, I have to say, before I start, I've got into the most incredible hot water over this whole program. And if I, I'm going to be careful about using these, the, these metaphors all the time, uh, because fishermen are very fond of red herrings. And, uh, but I, I, <laughs> I started this whole program, and I went off. I'm just, we were discussing just before we started, that I, I like to think of myself as being a sort of everyman as somebody who just sort of, you know, just the average guy. This is how I get these jobs. I mean, my, what happened to me originally, and, and some of you who've been following my television, are there any people who've been following my television career? <laughs> apart from me, obviously, and my dear mother. Uh, but uh, but then obviously, those would be, I, I, we did do restoration, and then, and then there was a new controller of BBC One, and he said, oh, no, I think I want, to, I want to send you off doing something different now, Griff, because they've forcibly retired me from being a, a comedian. And, uh, and as you can see, I'm not funny anymore. So uh, <laughs> they forcibly retired me. He said, I've got a, and this was an old partner I'd worked with. Peter Fincham, who'd been an old mate of mine, he used to play the piano for me when we first, isn't that interesting? It all links together. When we first came here 37 years ago to, to do the footlights and, and bankrupt Cambridge Theatre Company, we came here and Peter Fincham was playing the piano, although maybe that was a, bit, a little bit later, but Peter Fincham was at the piano and now he's the head of ITV. Isn't that an extraordinary move for somebody to make? <laughs> really. 
Uh, uh, it's an extraordinary move, only because he wasn't a great pianist, we never thought. But, uh, <laughs> but, it, but, that's just a, but it does show that actually, we probably don't really realise this, but some of the, we always used to say when we came here as undergraduates and things like that, you have to look out for the musicians, because they really, they're the ones with the control and the power. In fact, David Hare, the famous playwright, he was also the piano player with the footlights. And Alan Rusbridger, the, the editor of The Guardian, who was, I, I was listening to on Classic FM, there's only this very morning, on the way here, Alan Rusbridger, he used to play the clarinet in Peter Fincham's band. So, altogether, you can see those musicians, quite honestly, have done very, very much better for themselves than any of the stars or the people who got up there making an exhibition of themselves because they're organising things and we just have to do what they say. Anyway, I went to see Peter and he said, I've got... We had been done various things together. And he said, um, he said, actually, I've got an idea for you. I think, I, what I think, I'd like you to do a programme we're making called Mountain." And I said, well, Peter, I said, uh, that's really nice of you to offer, but I don't, honestly, I, I, I mean, I've just done old buildings, you know. I, uh, I don't really know anything about mountains. I don't know anything about He said, that's great. So that's really good. You don't know anything about mountains. You've been up mountains before. That's, you know, that would, that's just great for what the viewer wants to see. Somebody who's never been there and who experiences it for the first time. And I said, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to do it unless if there was going to be any sort of proper climbing involved because, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm, look at me. <laughs> I'm... I'm 50-something now, and uh, I, do, I don't know whether it would be something I... He said, no, 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 that'd be great. What could be better for an audience, really, than seeing somebody who's 50, whatever you are, Griff, uh, and sort of, you know, learning how to become a mountain climber and all that. And I said, OK, but what if I fall off? And he said, that'd be fantastic if they could manage it. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I was sent away... <laughs> to become a sort of mountaineer, to go and become a sort of everyman guide to mountaineering. And after I'd done this, he said, oh, well, that, they said, well, that went quite well, actually. We, we quite enjoyed that. That was a pity you didn't fall off. But uh, what we, you know, what we'd like to do is some more of that, of that sort of, that daring do sort of stuff, if you could do it for us. Uh, and uh, I said, well, I've got an idea. <laughs> I've been up the mountains now. I've got to, what if I do the valleys, you see? And I could go sort of, you know, in, into the valleys and look at what happens in the valleys, those rivers that go down there. And in all seriousness, this, 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 this is how it came about. Now, the truth is that I was interested in doing this because I suppose, I don't know if, are there, I mean, I, I'm very interested in boats. I don't, I, what I, I've done a lot of things in my time. One of the things I haven't actually done is, is done much talking about books, although I have sort of started to write books sort of relatively late in my life. And I wrote a book about a, a, a journey I took to the Baltic. That was the first book I read. And uh, I, the first book I read, it was the first book I, I wrote, actually, to be honest. I, I had, I thought I'd better read one before I... Uh, <laughs> before I wrote a book, uh, but I, so I had read a couple of books, uh, but it was, it was the first book I wrote, and I, I thought, how extraordinary a book. I thought, I'm going to do a journey up to, to the Baltic, and I'm only mentioning this because it's still on sale, and you might like to buy it. It's, um, it's a very, it's a, and I liked, I, I, the whole experience was basically, we chose to go to St. Petersburg. I bought a boat. I, boats were in my blood. My, my father used to his idea of an ideal holiday was to use his family as a sort of human shield. And he'd, he, he sort of bought what was, what was really the equivalent of a garden shed 
uh, and, and floated it out onto all the murky creeks of East Anglia, and his family were forced, as it were, forced, forced to go to go with him. We weren't allowed in those days as children to argue with our parents. It's extraordinary how things have changed. And uh, we, we, we just had to go with him for months on end because he was a doctor and he used to take all his holiday at once. And weather not dissimilar to this, I may add. And we'd go out freezing cold and, and, and journey around the creeks of East Anglia. Nothing too dodgy. We did once try and cross the, uh, the channel uh, and we got halfway across and he got very, very alarmed because he saw an oil rig. And he looked on his charts, and the nearest oil rig were oil rigs were just off Scotland. So he decided that we had drifted all the way to Scotland while crossing the channel, and got into a terrible panic until the oil rig appeared uh, being towed uh, down the thing in front of him. And so I inherited two things from him. I inherited it in your blood, you know, boats, small boats. I, there's nothing I could do about that. And also. I inherited a sort of love of the water and a fear of oil rigs uh, and other, other major things going wrong when you're on a boat. For me, um, far from being a sort of adventurous, courageous sort of person, I am, in many respects, <laughs> an utter coward. I'm a drip. So, I, so I, I, I'm sent off now to do these things and to sort of experiment with boats. But I did, I was very, very keen on doing this trip because I had actually, see, unlike mountaineering, I had some experience of rivers. I, I knew what they were, and when I, I, when I was, when my own children were under my control, a great thing for any father, um, I, when they were sort of about 10 or 11, I decided that we, we were in that we were on holiday in the Dordogne, and I said, I know what we'll do this afternoon. We'll, we'll hire these canoes, and we'll go for a canoe trip on the Dordogne. It doesn't sound much of an experience, does it, really? But an afternoon on the door door, that was my qualification for doing five major series for... Uh, no, but I went further than that. We went up and down, we went on the canoe, and I, I, really, I really loved the process of canoeing on the, with the kids. It was, a, it was a terrific sort of experience. There's something very liberating, in a funny sort of way, about being on a river. I think it's primeval, to be absolutely honest. Uh, one of the things I go into in the book, but you don't have to worry about that. I, uh, I like the, I think we all relish the idea of drifting on a river. Uh, it's in Huckleberry Finn, it's part of our, our natures to want to go on. And rivers, we realise as we are making the series, have the great advantage of they have a sort of, they have serendipity built into them. There's something wonderful about a river, about wondering what is beyond the next bend. Because 90% of rivers, are, are, I can't speak for some very straight ones in Bedford, but uh, some 90% of the rivers wind their way through the countryside. And there's an incredible, I, while we were making this series, I was often, that they would say, OK, that's it, we're going now, Griff, get out. And I'd be going, no, I just want to go on just a little bit further to see what's round the next bend. It's there, it's something we all want to do. So I, I live on an estuary. And I live on the estuary because... Uh, because of my father, really. It's, you know, as I say, it's in your blood, and I couldn't conceive of not living somewhere where I could look out on a stretch of water. So I live on an estuary in Suffolk, and the Stour River becomes a great wide plain of water, runs on down to the sea at Harwich. And I thought, well, having done that trip, that little trip on the Dordogne, it would be rather fun to to go further, to, to go upstream and see what this river could offer me, what, what, 
what adventures we could have if we bought our own canoes. So I immediately that afternoon, because I'm a little bit impulsive, my poor wife has to suffer these impulses, and my children <laughs> too. And uh, so I said, well, look, let's go, and get, let's go and get hold of some canoes. So um, I went to the Yellow Pages, literally, looked it up. There was, a, there was, the, uh, there was a, a man selling canoes, apparently, in Frinton-on-Sea. So I went down to Frinton-on-Sea, and there, there was a wonderful sort of store full of every conceivable plastic boat, you know, sort of pedillos or whatever, pedillos, you know, and, and all those things. And, and there was, now, there was a, can you imagine this, dads? There was... A, a trailer, the very one that you see in the programme, the very one you see in the programme, a trailer with two canoes on it and the boxes, and the boxes were all full of paddles and all the equipment and the life jackets and everything you needed to go canoeing on the river. And, I, I, and not only that, it was, a, it was cheap. It was a good price. And I thought, this is terrific. And I thought, wow, how marvellous. And it all came on the trailer. And all I, I had a tow bar on the back. And I thought, this is fantastic. And I'm saying to the kids, look, it's fate. It's here for us to buy. Now, mums, you're probably thinking, probably thinking what, what my wife was probably thinking, is why would somebody want to sell an entire set? Of canoes, <laughs> complete with all the paddles. I bet they bought them all and then decided after one trip that that was about as much as they ever wanted to do. <laughs> Didn't they? Well, anyway, uh, I did buy this, it, and actually I bought them, and it was a bit like that because it reminded me of the time I was in Nantucket fishing, and I decided I needed. You see, I don't, I don't, I like fishing. I'm not an anti-fisherman at all. I love fishing. And I decided, I saw people fishing, and I thought, I'd like to do a little bit of fishing in Nantucket. And I went to the store, and I stood with a man, and I said, I'd like to buy, uh, I'd like to do some fishing. He said, ah, uh, sure. And I said, uh, I'd like to buy a rod. OK, you want to buy a rod? Yeah, yeah, I want to I buy one. Buy, I'll buy, what rod should I need for surf fishing? Oh, uh, well, uh, you, you want to buy one? Yes, I want to buy a rod. OK, uh, here, uh, there's the uh, rod. Uh, I'll have one of those reels over there. Thanks very much, and a reel, and the lures over there. And, then, and he taught me how to do it. I walked away, and I turned back, and he was standing under a sign about 40 foot by 20 foot, which said, rent fishing equipment. <laughs> so <laughs> if anybody is thinking of copying me, Look it up, you can rent some of these canoes and kayaks for going down the river. But I, I hadn't really got, I hadn't really got myself sort of sorted out to do that rental or movement or anything like that. I was, I was just keen to get on the river and I went down the Stour from Sudbury. Now, this is a river, a fascinating river, because it, it, it's the river where I end up. And those of you who are following the series, I... I'm, I'm going to spoil the last episode for you now, and I'm sorry about that, but I end up on the Stour, which is where I mentally, and before I made the series, I started. I end up on a narrow river that runs down through the English countryside. And I drifted away with the kids in two canoes. I was amazed to find that even then, I'm going to have to mention him sometime. Cadbury the dog was... Hey, I'm, I just have to apologise. He, he wouldn't come with me. Uh, uh, <laughs> we had to leave him at home and everything. I'll talk about him later in a minute. So, um, I know you've only come to see Cadbury, haven't you? Yeah. 
I have to tell you, the BBC are doing another series and Cadbury's starring in it and they're not going to do it. <laughs> They've done away with me altogether. He absolutely loves the, he loves the boat. I've never quite been able to work out why. Um, I think, honestly, um, he, even then, he jumped into the boat. He got, he, well, I, I mean, he gets in with a certain delicacy because he's quite a big dog. I mean, he's a big dog to be getting in a boat. And he's OK as long as he doesn't... I mean, if you're familiar with small boats, he's fine, stability-wise, as long as he doesn't sort of... He doesn't jump out, he doesn't do anything, really. He sits there, he lies down, but sometimes he sort of goes... <laughs> bump, like that, and moves his ass from one side of the boat to the other, and the whole boat tips over like that. But apart from that, he's really well behaved. I had to keep kicking him to get him, just because we'd do one shot where we'd go past, and he'd sort of, he'd be lying in the thing, and I, I'd have to get him to stick his head, so he did find it a little bit... <sighs> where he had to sit up, you know, and look around like this. But he was the best... Now, this is the absolute truth. He was Cabby the Wonder Dog in terms of filming, because we would, uh, we would go out and we'd start filming, and, um, and uh, it, usually, because he's now, he's 11, for those of you who don't know, who know anything about dogs, that's pretty old for a dog, and he's 11, but he, 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 so at the age of 11, he's got selective deafness, you know, he won't do these days what he is told to do unless he really wants to do it. But when we go filming, <laughs> and we do things, crazy things in filming, you know, you, you come to a gate and you go, you come through the gate and you walk through the gate and you look down at the river, you know, like that. Um, I was always, I had to learn myself to do a lot of gazing in mountains and, uh, and rivers. I'm always gazing. I'm always gazing out into the thing. It's a, quite a technique to learn, I can tell you. And uh, I would walk through the, I'd, I'd come through the gate like that, you know, and Cadbury would sort of come through after me. I'd go, and we'd go on. And very rarely, because I've worked with dogs before. In fact, I did a long, I did a film called Wilt, where I starred, with the dog starred alongside me, and I had one, about five-minute monologue by a canal side at three o'clock in the morning and walked all the way down and I remembered every single word of this three-minute monologue and when I got to the other end they said, Cut! I'm afraid we have to go again, Griff, because the dog didn't come with you from the very beginning. <laughs> but Cadbury, Cadbury not like this at all. This is why I wanted to, this is why I wanted him with me because if we would go, if we go through the gate, he goes through and he walks and he goes and he walks down and then I go, they say, do you want another take? Uh, uh, and they say, oh, yeah, we need to do it again. And I look back, and Cadbury's already waiting <laughs> to come through the gate again. I've ne it's absolutely astounding. He never tires of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Extraordinary. So he was a natural star and a natural river dog. Now, I know people are probably asking as well, given that it's a dog. They're probably asking, you're probably thinking, why does he wear a life jacket? And I know that people are asking this because whenever we read the story about a dog falling in the surf, when we read that from time to time, don't we? Where, you know, when people go to the seaside and the dog runs off and it gets carried away by the sea, and then the, the dad, the figure like me, leaps in to save the dog. Dad drowns, and a little bit later the dog comes out wagging its tail, <laughs> looking round and wondering where, what's going on. Because dogs swim perfectly well. But if you should be tempted to take a dog with you, I really recommend giving it or finding it a life jacket, they're freely available. And the life jacket is not so important because it helps them to float, but because there's a handle on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> Quite often, 
he was very, very good, although I don't think we ever captured it on camera. It would happen, it's one of those things, uh, us presenters do find ourselves going, did you get that? Did you get what just happened there? What, what, Griff? What, sorry, we're just changing the film. Oh, sorry. But we did arrive just in Shrewsbury, not Shrewsbury. We arrived in Shrewsbury, and I remember giving up to the station, we came to a very nice landing place, and Cadbury had obviously had enough, because we'd come right the way round, and he'd sat patiently in the boat, and he decided he was going to get out a little bit premature, so he put his front legs on the on the on the the thing was a little height on the key and his back legs he got up on the edge of the canoe and unfortunately <laughs> the canoe <laughs> the canoe went out that way because I wasn't quite uh, sure yet and he went <laughs> straight and that happened that that's the that's the only misfortune that used to happen to him and it, then I easily with the handle you can reach down and like Pulling up a sort of, it's a bit like pulling up a sort of suitcase, a sort of a really damp suitcase. You get him up, and he's a heavy dog to pull up as well. So I, you know, I felt I had to be fit, fittest for that of all the things I did. Up, and then you put him down on the on the bank there, and then you run like crazy. <laughs> because the next thing he does is give himself the most enormous shake, and all this river water would come pouring all over me. And uh, so generally, he he he, but he took to the river, <laughs> like a, a dog to water. Anyway, he, he, loved, he loved the whole idea of being, even, uh, the only thing that frightened him was the swans, because he liked, I think what he liked, a dog liked about being on the river, more even than I liked being on the river, is the, is the pace you go. He would sit there in the, uh, in the front of the canoe, and uh, he'd start sniffing. He thought, sort of, he'd open up whatever his follicles were in his, you know, in his nostrils, and he'd allow all the river smells to come into him. And it was better than going for a walk, almost, because he didn't have to make the effort, you know. But he'd just, he'd just drift down at about the same pace that he likes to go for his walks. He'd let all the smells drift into him, and a big length of drool would... Uh, <laughs> he usually appeared down here. He sort of literally salivated over whatever it was he could smell. He's very good with ducks. He doesn't attack ducks, but swans would get very upset about seeing him there. And when we were at, uh, when we finally got back to the store and did that last last moment in Constable Country in Flatford Mill, <laughs> he he sat. I'd left him in the. Uh, I leave him in the in the canoe while I go and talk to a, ma a man about Constable, about John Constable and what he what he what, what he what rivers meant to him, and. Um, while we were standing on the bridge, just pontifying, I looked down and Cadbury decided, he'd looked over and a swan had come over, a young swan with his family, male swan, had come over and <laughs> over towards Cadbury. And Cadbury also went, oh my God, and uh, <laughs> went to get out of the canoe and the swan came along and pecked him on the bottom. I've never, <laughs> just like, like that. And I've never seen Cadbury look so sort of, down, he often looks downtrodden, but he really, it was almost as if this was too much, really, for the poor 11-year-old Labrador. You know, he was doing no harm to anybody, and then he got attacked, as it were, bitten on the bottom by a swan. So, apart from that minor tragedy, he had, he was great, except obviously in hotels, which is another story altogether. But anyway, I was on the store. I, what I'd done was I'd gone down the store. Cadbury had had his first experience, and I'd, I'd discovered for myself, this was way before we did the series, and why I wanted to do this series, something which was extraordinarily magical. 
Now, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to plug somebody else's book while I'm here. Robert McFarlane wrote a book called The Wild Places, which is a very, very wonderful book, and it's all about trying to find wild places in, uh, in Britain. And one of the... One of the, he asked people to recommend to him wild places, and they said, oh, go to Sutherland, or, you know, you can find, if you go up to Sylvain or the Coolins, or wherever, you can find, still find wild places in, but you know, you go onto the top of the Yorkshire Moors, you'll find it there. But somebody very cleverly wrote to him and said, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that, Robert. What you can do is journey just 30 miles from where you live in Emmanuel, in college, in Cambridge, and you can go on that river, on that river Stour, and you can disappear within minutes into one of the most extraordinary corridors of wilderness that runs through this exquisite country. Because there's no footpath that comes out. There used to be a footpath by this river. It's relatively narrow, after quite a lot widespread. It comes down, and you're really travelling down a river which goes on for miles, but it's no wider than from here to here, a, a lot of the way. There are beautiful trees on either side. Occasionally you'll see a wool merchant's house up there. But for long parts of it, there are extraordinary bulrushes on either side as you go through. And the river surface is covered with, um, uh, with water lilies, with big yellow flowers the size of a fist, or pink flowers that come up like that. And then the, the river itself is full of fish. Um, and as you paddle through, you know, they're literally swimming out of your way. And the floor of the river is covered, <laughs> unbelievably, with the remains of freshwater mussel shells, uh, which glint in the sun, if you're there on a lovely day, uh, uh, like the whole of the bottom of the river is covered with mother of pearl. And you suddenly find yourself in somewhere so exquisitely beautiful, built, made, created, like, like a garden by nature, where the individual parts of the um, tapestry of nature that are there are in such harmony around this clean river, a river that's been kept clean and, and, and freed from pollution, that has not been uh, spoilt, uh, in any way, and is largely untouched unless you're prepared to get in a boat and journey down it. But at the same time, what interests me about that river, and in a way what I wanted the whole series, and in particular my book to reflect, as well as the funny stories about Cadbury and, and, and visiting Chatsworth, and I, I sort of tell the story, I, I hope, of some other encounters which, which, uh, uh, which we, we never got into the... Um, uh, into the actual film, so there's quite a lot of backstage stories about the ones that got away, as it were. But what I what I try to do is to try and f and formulate for myself a, a an understanding of what a river means to us, because when I started to do this program, before I did it, I needed to do research. I actually went to try and find books which help would help me. To, to explain what I feel about rivers, and I really couldn't find them. I could find poetry books about rivers. I could find geography books about rivers. I couldn't find a very good history book about rivers. It's an almost unstudied uh, subject. There are lots of uh, books about the importance of medieval guilds and the importance of medieval road systems, but very, very few about the importance of medieval rivers, which were the most important form of transport for medieval people. And yet, it's far more than a place of nature. 
it's far more than this tapestry, because the river that I'm travelling on, the Stour, as you go down there, they tried to close it down in 1971. The authorities, the water authorities, decided they didn't want anybody to use this river at all. They, they, thought, it was they thought it was important to stop people going on it because the river that you're travelling down is also one of the main water mains for London. You'd never know it. There's no indication of it. The, the fish don't know it. The bulrushes don't know it. But they extract water from the fens in huge quantities, run it across the country, put it into Cavendish, take it down, and when they get down to Higham, they have more pumping stations, and they take water out and they supply it to the uh, North London, and they keep North London supplied with water. It's a marvellous piece of engineering, but also a marvellous piece of natural supply. So it has that function. It has the function of being part of our culture. Not just because, in medieval times, this river was a vitally important way for, for boats to move, but because a constable himself recognised the quality of this river. As he said, what he loved most of all was, to, was, the, was, was the sight of a, a semi-rotten piece of wood or a, or a damp corner. And that's what he was seeking to try and evoke. Not, a, not an 18th century view of the river uh, as, as presented by Capability Brown or, or in the, the pictures of Lorraine as some, some sort of fantasy world of nymphs and satyrs, but actually a working river. His river is called, his rivers that he painted, scenes from or on a navigable river. His father was a miller on the river, and that mill still sits there. His father was also a member of the navigation board, which had kept that river open in order that the silkworks at Sudbury and the brickworks at Sudbury, which provided the bricks for St Pancras Station, and they were carried down that river. And the, the barges that you see going down in Constable's pictures are part of the use of that river. In other words, I have been accused by angling associations, God bless them, of being an incurable romantic of somebody who doesn't understand rivers, who thinks of rivers as having something to do with Constable. I'm saying in this series, in my book, in what I hoped to sort of show and, and experience, I'm saying that rivers are part of a greater and more important spiritual whole of both our country and ourselves than we are currently allowing them to be often that there are a lot of interests, including water authorities and, God bless them again, the Environment Board, who want to stop people having access to rivers, who want rivers to be secluded or, or used for one purpose alone, to be privatised, to be kept sequestered from people. But the picture that Constable paints and why those have such a value to us is of a river which is a working river and part in its workingness of connection with agriculture, with the land, and with our own sense of belonging. So that river, that Stour River, was, before I made the series, a vital experience to me, and an experience which I, I try to reproduce in the, last, in, the last, um, in the last one of the series, because for me, being on the river, exploring the river, finding the river. The river in our is, is, has increasingly become 
something which we, surprisingly, because we, millions of people fish on them, and, and a much smaller number of people go canoeing or kayaking on them, but, and they're part, in a way, I think what's interesting is the number of people who wanted to watch this programme, they are part of our, all, our, all our cultural baggage, but they are surprisingly um, not the thoroughfares that they were. They are not the connection with the world, with the whole of Britain, that they were for, certainly, since man first found his way into this landmass by using them as paths. And so, um, for me, it was an extraordinary experience to be able to do the series and an extraordinary experience to be able to write the book. Because, as we were also saying earlier, before I started, <laughs> I said, I don't, I'm just everybody, I just go out into the rivers and find out, you know, to a certain extent, with the help of researchers, we look at various bits, they'd say, here's a story here, and we select and choose and think, well, this, and we looked for themes to link them together, so we would do an industrial river, we did in Scotland a wild river, we tried to look at a sort of, um, the, the sort of river in, in its connection with spirituality in the West Country, and the river in the future, I think, or what it means to the future in the last series. But what we obviously wanted to do was reflect the serendipity as well, and we try to go out and do that. And as I said before, I don't go in order to lecture. <laughs> and now what's odd is that having made the experience to write the book for me was something which gave me the chance to put my, my disparate thoughts into, into order. And um, uh, I, I feel, having written the book, that I, I now can lecture. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry if I am, obviously, but, but that's the sort of state that's, that, that getting to grips with writing, as it were, or taking all the experience we've had and putting them into the book has meant to me. And the book does mean something a lot to me. Um, I know there's a tendency for people to think of television books as just the sort of, you know, just, you know, we'll get this one out and that'll sort of that, how to say, but uh, and I'm really desperate for people to read this book because I think what we need to say about the rivers or what we all, the, the researchers, the directors, the producers and us, what we felt about, and what, particularly what I felt about the experience of rivers is actually contained in this book. So that was really what I'm saying is an extremely lengthy plug for this book. <laughs> Are there any questions that anybody would like? <laughs> Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask? And I'll try, I'm happy to uh, try and sort of uh, answer. Yes, sorry, yes, there's one down here, yes. Uh, hi, Griff. Um, hi. Coracles, yes. the most elegant form of river transport. Discuss. Yes, well, <laughs> I, um, I was, I've spent quite a lot of my time as a young man, heaving dinghies back and forth, up and down the gravel, you know, to get it down, down the hard, to get it down. So I, I must admit, when we started, and I thought I started weaving this coracle, and we did, you know, bend the thing. We can't keep it all on, unfortunately, on film, but all the bending of the things, and you make this what appears to be a great big sort of rather splendid basket. And it took me back to my kindergarten, where I once made a bottle holder. Uh, in fact, it wasn't supposed to be a bottle holder, but after uh, the shape of it, uh, may it meant that it turned into a bottle holder halfway through. And this was a bit, my, my coracle came out, and I was very... And then, then I picked it up, and I was absolutely astonished. I mean, the coracle was so, the lightest boat I have ever dealt with. I mean, it's a splendid thing. It's an extraordinary um, uh, uh, piece of uh, rivercraft, because you can hold it on one, on one finger. 
And suddenly, I, mean, I was a complete and utter coracle convert, as you can imagine. I thought, what a fantastic, but, but I have to have one. You know, I can only imagine from now on I will go everywhere in a coracle. And, uh, I, uh, and not only that, but you have to, you have to, um, you have to steer, make it go by the opposite way. I've, I've sort of single, you know, with a single oar behind, with a dinghy. But I've never, I've, never, I've never done that, which is basically a process where you push the water out of the way in front of the boat, so the boat goes into the vacuum that you've created. That's an amazing thing. And understandably, when the Romans came here, they took one look at these coracles, pinched the idea, and used them to attack the Spanish. So everything, everything about them has a great history. Then I got in it. <laughs> and one twitch of the buttock. Just, I have been in some unstable boats in my time. <laughs> but a coracle, I mean, it's like, um, it's like sort of getting into the rafters, into the sort of attic of a hobbit's house, if you can imagine, because you're not allowed to tread anywhere but on the, on the, st on the sort of willow or, or, or um, hazel rods. If you put, were foolish enough to put your foot between them, like being up in the attic, you know, your foot would suddenly appear. Um, through the ceiling, but or obviously in the water, and then you'd sink. So um, it was an extraordinary thing, a difficult thing to get into, and then off we went. And honestly, I know this is another thing that I need, because, you see, what they do in these films is I master this skill. I did master it. We went through the rapids. The person who was teaching me went arse over tit and nearly drowned, and I went through, okay, because I was a novice, and I just went through, whoa, and off we went. They waited for about two days until I fell out of the thing, and that's what they put in. <laughs> Any other question? <laughs> any other question? Yes. Oh, there, yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm happy to ask, answer any uh, questions you may have. Uh, your passion for heritage and, um, has come through in this series and in restoration. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of comment about how you feel um, we can preserve more heritage with the rivers. And particularly relating to the last one I saw, which is the River Lee, yes. which is being horrendously overdeveloped on its bank sides, certainly through Hackney and some of the other East London areas, which may have, have come out in the book, which I haven't read, but didn't really come through in the TV programme. Yeah. I'm just kind of wondering whether you've got uh, any suggestions. Well, um, uh, I think Simon Jenkins has rightly said that the next battle, the real battle that's going to happen in heritage is partly not just for buildings but for, for uh, the environment, for countryside uh, and, and I think we can include in that uh, places like rivers and, and uh, the Lee. I found the trip down the Lee one of the most, I mean almost the most exciting, it's the one I want to do again. Because when we're filming, there's a lot of stopping and starting, getting out, and we, you know, we, and we all get in the bus. I'm sorry to say this is the truth, but uh, we do, you know, we do skip bits and then move on down and so on. And the Lee was just, I mean, the Lee, the problem with the Lee was what do we leave out? I mean, apart from the stories of, uh, 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 that we did, we did see, the, the extraordinary uh, gunpowder factories in Waltham Abbey, I mean, there are, um, I think, over a hundred uh, first sort of uh, um, 
uh, in original sites down the Lee of industrial heritage, where some of the first things were started. You know, apart from the Lee Enfield, there's the, uh, the, the fields of, of Hackney Marshes, where they, 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 uh, the Avro um, engine uh, planes, Britain's first aeroplanes, military planes, were tested on the fields of, of, of uh, uh, Hackney Marshes. And so, as you journey down that, you are confronting all the time an extraordinary uh, history of London in that uh, river. But I have to say that I didn't find it incredibly unspoilt. I found a lot of it very exciting. I think what happens, and we have to accept this with so many rivers, we have to accept it in Liverpool, for example, it's another good example, that industrial processes, as they use a river, are temporary. Nearly all of them have a limited life. Cromford Mill, which on, on, the, uh, on the Derwent, which was an extremely important part of our industrial heritage, the first factory to use the power, which used the power of water, and was only an, an effective system until the, uh, until the steam engine was invented. And then it was made redundant. It almost instantly becomes redundant, that, that, that use of, of, of the river. What we need to do, as we're coming to reuse those areas, or look at them again, is have respect for what's already there, especially if it's representative representation of an age, but also be aware that maybe our new use, our new concern, is a temporary concern. And that we are going to be, have to be accountable for what we do to future generations. Is if we've changed or altered things to the degree that we've lost some of the, of the great things that we find. And the Lee, in particular, is an interesting idea because the, the new river which we featured, which is an extraordinary, another great thing in the East End. And for me, walking down the new river, we followed it for much further than you see in the, in the programme, to, to follow this extraordinary London aqueduct, which was built in 1670 by a Welsh gold miner. It's one of the most sort of extraordinary romantic ideas. And it's still there, still doing the job, still running through. And we don't, and sort of we take it for granted that it comes down and it runs through some of the most, most beautiful parts of the East End. But it was built partly, or funded partly, by James I, who sat uh, and watched some of it being built from his palace, which he used to have in the East End of London, overlooking that particular area. And you think, gosh, I see. So the, so the king once had a palace in the East End, an almost impossible idea for us now, isn't it? Lord Burley lived out in Hertfordshire, an almost impossible idea for us, because we think of the East End as being this sort of run-down area. But I, f I found it incredibly fascinating, and I know there are dozens of people who are concerned to preserve as much of it. But what happens, I guess, is that there's, a, there's always an area, a, 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 an area of panic that immediately follows a change of use. And I suppose that's the time when we, when we really need to be careful. Has anybody else uh, any, any, any questions that I can uh, help anyone with? Would you ever go back and swim in the River Tay? <laughs> mm. People say to me, the funny thing is, people say to me, gosh, that swimming you did in the, in the Mersey, that looked really difficult. And so that was in August, that was now. The Tay, it was a beautiful day, but it was in November. <laughs> and it was, the sun was shining. And as I, I say in the book, I'm plugging the book again, but as I say in the book, I, I sort of, there were, the, the, the T, the relay, the fibbies. Are you a member of a fibbies yourself, sir? No, 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 no. Well, they were quite, they're quite a hardy bunch, and they go swimming, you know, wild swimming. 
And I said to them, I said to the girl who was sitting next to me, I said, uh, so uh, do, you, do you do this uh, often in, in November? Um, and she said, no, we'd never have. We're, we're only doing it because you're here. <laughs> and the first guy who got him, when we, when we hauled him out, he was bright pink. He looked, as if, he looked as if he'd been cooked, not frozen. It was absolutely extraordinary. And he got out, and I was the third in, so my heart really began to sink. I have to say, it was the last thing we did. In the, I know it's all higgledy-piggledy, but funnily enough, it was the last thing we did in the entire series. And I was sitting there, we put it out first, and I was sitting there thinking, well, I, I'm not going to do this. I, uh, I, this is to beyond. And in fact, I only did it because it was the last thing we were doing. It was utterly freezing cold. When we swam in the, in the, the, the Mersey, of course, again, the miscalculation. They said there are a group of people who swim across the Mersey on a regular basis. I said, oh, that's right, I'm, a, I'm quite a hardy swimmer. I, I think I'll go with them, and that's all right. And then they took me down to the Mersey. And of course, I should, by then I hadn't done my research, because the Mersey is interesting as a river, because it closes to a little neck at the mouth of the, uh, of, the, of the Mersey, and then it opens out into a huge bay, which makes it rather unique, apparently. It also makes it an extremely long way <laughs> to swim from one side to the other. And when I got there, there the water was sort of heaving and swirling. It was yellow. It was yellow, the water, and it was sort of heaving and swirling. There was a great sort of stormy wave. You could barely see the towers of the Albert Dock on the other side. And, I saw, and the thing that really alarmed me was they had not one but three safety boats <laughs> ready to go with me. So that was another point, which, of course, I have to say is in the book, but uh, they didn't put on the film. Me going, I'm not doing this. No, I'm sorry. I don't care what, I, I don't think it's important to the film anymore. I, uh, I really think people were, you know, it's just a man getting in the water, what do you make of that? It just looks like something, does. you can't tell people like going up a mountain that it's cold and horrible. You just have to, yes, all right, I'll go. And then off we went. And the poor man who does it three or four times a year was standing in the back, all oh, right, let's see, well, that was just, it's just ridiculous. We've got a complete wimp here. And so um, I, uh, I'm afraid I made a, I did, it was an awful moment, both of them. And then that tanker came by, <laughs> halfway across. It was ironic, because I'd, only a little while before, I'd recorded a piece of camera which said something on the lines of, the shipping has left. <laughs> <laughs> the mercy. <laughs> they, they didn't use that either. Uh, but I had... <laughs> But and you've no idea how complicated it was to arrange to get that tanker to come by. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? <laughs> Hi. I, I wondered um, how much you were influenced by the work that Norman Ackroyd had done on the Thames in London. Well, not much. And the reason why is I had read, I'd read his book, but, and that was the reason we did the Lee, partly. I had myself made Three Men in a Boat, and we'd, you know, we'd gone up, we'd rowed up, so, and there'd been, and then I was speaking to my d dear friend James Runcie, who lives in Edinburgh, actually, he's an author, and he told me that, about his long experience making a great series about the Thames and everything, and I thought, hmm, I wanted to do a story about, I wanted to do one about cities and rivers, but uh, I thought, well, the, the, the Thames is well, uh, I mean, it's never, you're never going to explore the whole of the Thames. It's the most fascinating river in Britain. 
but I decided that in order to tell the story which I was interested in was the relationship between the city and the river. We didn't have enough time. My favourite story is the way that the rivers, because basically cities, uh, Wesley said that any river on a, uh, any river, that it, any city that is not on a river feeds only itself. So for the 18th century, the, the river, the relationship that a city had with its river, 98% of, of of, of towns and cities in Britain are built on rivers. They were that important. They carried away all their waste, but they brought all their food in. It was the main transport system, and London was absolutely no different. And then in about 1750, London became too big for its river. And uh, thanks to the invention of the flushing lavatory, <laughs> Londoners started to kill themselves. <laughs> Up to that point, they had basically used dry privies, and the dry uh, remains had been carried away by cart and stuck uh, on moorfields. Uh, but um, and from about 1750 onwards, they started the most fashionable thing in this hugely expanding city was to have a flushing lavatory. A new patent was brought out, which made them really work very, very well. Up to that point, there'd only two been made, uh, both for Queen Elizabeth I. But, um, the, but they introduced the flushing lavatory, and because every time they pulled um, the, the loo, they basically washed a lot of water down, all the, um, the, the sewage went directly for the first time into the rivers, and the rivers became full of cholera and, and disease, and London became one of the most dangerous cities in the world until Bazalgette and others uh, changed it. So um, I, I was enormously, uh, I mean, I read it avidly, but I tried as far as I could to look for new and sort of stories. And in a way, the Lee uh, was, was the answer to my problem. Sorry, we've got time for a couple more, if, 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 especially if I answer them slightly more succinctly. <laughs> Thank you, Griff. Your passion's infectious. Uh, I can't help asking what might be your next project. Oh, Sorry. yes. <laughs> no, that's, no, my next project, funny enough, is I'm d I've just got back from uh, Italy, where I was in Rome, and uh, I'm doing three more programmes about cities, which is my, great, uh, real, uh, my other great love. Um, and so... Uh, we, we had a very adventurous time sort of exploring uh, Rome and, and uh, almost too big a subject for the 45-minute ITV hour, I'm afraid. Um, but one of the things that I did do there was I, uh, I went down the, uh, I went down the, uh, the Tiber. I couldn't, they can't keep me off the rivers. I went down the Tiber with Madonna Divino Amore, which is um, a sacred Madonna who was found. Uh, at the mouth of the, of the Tiber by fishermen in the 16th century and has been carefully preserved ever since. And once a year, the people of uh, Trastevere uh, take her down the river, parade her down the river, and then the fraternity, the brotherhood uh, of local uh, Trastevereans, uh, haul her up uh, the bank on their backs, take her into the church, and there's a great ceremony. And I was invited to be one of the brothers. And so I actually, it was an extraordinary experience to get to the heart of real Rome, to actually be there uh, heaving, you know, being one of those people, you know, sort of carrying the Madonna actually up the stairs with passing ladies who were in ecstasies, like, like uh, the Benini statue, you know, like this. Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was, and we went up, we took her through, and we put her into San Maggiore, and uh, then, uh, and then the, the whole ceremony happened. And it was fantastic. It just shows that Catholic Church is very good on spectacle. It was that. 
Honestly, it was, it was more packed out than this uh, audience tonight. It was the, 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 whole, uh, the, the whole of the congregation of Trastevere were there to welcome their Madonna into their church. It was a great, great experience. Mm. So that's coming up, uh, that's coming up uh, sometime early next year. I'm off with Rory and Dara to make more Three Men in a Boat, which, uh, <laughs> unbelievably, we are still venturing forth together. Uh, uh, and then, uh, and then, I, and then I'm, I've got a little bit of an interim where I'm doing something else. Uh, I'm going back to being a performer, I hope. And then I'm going to, uh, uh, and then I'm going to <laughs> follow up crazily. Another of my very, very, uh, I'm very interested in folk and tribal art. So I'm going to do a program where I travel to various parts of the world to try and um, um, see, uh, to try and trace down some disappearing art forms in uh, the world. Uh, if everything goes according to plan. Uh, and then, and so I can continue my education at the expense of your, the licence payers. Pay, so. <laughs> <laughs> for which I, I bless you and thank you. Any, anybody else for one last, uh, last question? Yeah. Griff, in Scotland we have an enlightened attitude towards access to rivers. Do you think there are too many vested interests in the rest of Great Britain for them to follow suit? Well, I'm very, very glad you brought that up because I realise that uh, we still haven't addressed the question that we started our whole congregation with. Uh, and the answer to that, uh, which is very complicated, is that I admire um, the access that's here in Scotland and I think it's a very great benefit to anybody and actually does very little harm to anybody. Because when we went down the tunnel, I was very, I was prone to notice that I was with Mary and we were canoeing down. What I was most of all, if we hadn't been with a film crew, if we had fallen over in that water and drowned, um, nobody would have known about it. <laughs> we were miles from anywhere else, even just simply leaving the bottom of Loch Tay there. We immediately went out. There was nobody walking on the bank for us to disturb. We disturbed nobody. My point which was taken up by angling associations in, in England with such vigour and, and, in a way, I'd thought shooting themselves in the foot, really, um, was that my point was that not, uh, was to use disturb ironically, a canoeist does not really disturb fish and it doesn't really disturb an angler for more than about 30 seconds before they've turned the corner and they're out of the way. There aren't millions and millions of canoeists. It's not like the M1. The more access you give, the more you will spread canoes across the country anyway, um, and you won't focus them. And it seems to me that the great thing that we should be trying to achieve is the right, is, the, is a way of sharing and share alike. What has happened with the vested interest, what the, the vehemence, I mean the absolute ad hominem reaction of of the Anglican Association. I mean, this was a chance remark at the end of a tiny article in an obscure BBC magazine. And they both, several associations, made people write to me in the most violent way. They went immediately to the newspapers, and my only conclusion was, they know they are in the wrong. <laughs> they know that if this thing is made public, that they, uh, they, they, will be, they will be exposed to the glare of people who most people would say, Come on, you know, you said when the right to roam was taken, uh, right to paddle was taken out of the right to roam in England and Wales, that you would increase access. That most canoeists, and certainly the British Canoe Union, would say that has not happened. I mean, it's happened in a very grudging way with rivers like the River Dove, you know, you can go down for one day a year and things like that. And it seems to me that if we have 41,000 miles of navigable river and only 1,500 are able to be 
drifted down or swam in, then there's something wrong. And funnily enough, I wasn't much of an activist until they attacked me, and I think I am now. <laughs> That's well, Griff, I did use the word campaigner, and I think I might <laughs> no, have been right. No, you were right. right, you were right, I know. We've had the most fantastic hour. Actually, when I say hour, not, unlike ITV, our book festival hour lasts 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but we've had the most terrific 55 minutes from you. Thank you so much in, uh, for everything. Griff will be signing copies of his book in the signing tent, which just left and left again. So please come and meet him then. But in the meantime, just... Please join me in thanking Griffiths Jones. I have to say one last thing, which is very important, which is there are only 19 weeks till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>